Hello, my name's Dr. George McGavin, ex-Oxford academic, now TV naturalist, and genuine bona fide entomologist. Welcome to the Trees A Crowd podcast. Now, if I was hosting this podcast on the oak tree, I would tell you that no other tree interests me. It is an icon of the British countryside. It has given us the power to colonise the world. It has protected us from the elements. It has provided us with ink on which we have recorded a thousand years of history. And it supports more different species than any other tree in the UK. I admire the oak tree so much that I even made a 90-minute BBC documentary about these wonderful trees. Whereas all this cheapskate can offer you is a measly 10 minutes and a ridiculous jingle. Anyway, you've downloaded this waste of space, so I guess you want to hear it. Over to you, David. Cue jingle. Uploading the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Thank you, George. Right, hello and welcome to Trees A Crowd. It is David Oakes here and this week it is the big one. It is my namesake. This week it is Oakes on Oakes. An episode that reads more like an Indiana Jones movie than a nature podcast. For this week we have ritual sacrifice. We have God sent lightning. We have Nazis and we have boatloads of creepy crawlies. For as the devilishly charming Dr. Jones slash Dr. George McGavin, just said, there are so many incredible reasons to love these trees. And yes, it is trees plural, for from two tiny acorns grow two mighty native oak species. And they are trees number 36 and 37. The pedunculate oak, Quercus robur, and the sessel oak, Quercus petraea. Both our oaks are members of the genus Quercus, a global family of about 600 different oak species. And along with the other members of the Fagaceae, see last week's beech episode, they are trees that have dominated Europe. Penetrating halfway across France from the Bay of Biscay, creating a broad belt along northern Spain, and continuing much of the way down the west of the Iberian Peninsula, deciduous oakwoods reign supreme with majestic forests populated by massive ancient trees, all abundant with biodiversity. From here, our two native oak species stretch eastwards as far as Asia, but decrease in numbers as they hit the hot, dry plains of central Europe. Heading south, our species continue all the way to Portugal, but again, as they penetrate further, they drop off and are joined, then replaced, by other deciduous oak species, such as the Pyrenean and Lusitanian oak. But then, as the Mediterranean influence gets stronger, we enter the land of the evergreen oaks. A land of sun-drenched hillsides, once cloaked by ancient aromatic forests dominated by the likes of the holm oak, which has spiky, holly-like leaves. And also one of my very favourites, the cork oak, whose bark of cork can be peeled off every nine years or so and used to keep wine fresh, placed as the core of a cricket ball or used to cover a kitchen floor in the 1970s. These skin trees can be found flanking roadways, bark stripped downwards, looking like it's wearing a kilt and drying out its sporran in the heat of the Portuguese sun. Sadly, however, 
Most of these evergreen oak forests have now gone, their land eroded by heavy winter downpours, made all the worse by the diminishing amount of tree cover that used to be there to retain the water. But back to our two native species. Before man showed up with his massive chopper, the British Isles were swathed in oak forests. Oaks had followed on from the hazel, which in turn had taken over from the coniferous Scots pine. But it was the hazel that was instrumental in shifting lowland Britain into areas of extensive deciduous forests within which the oaks thrived. As such, for the last 9,000 years, our pedunculate oak and sessile oak have pretty much remained our most dominant tree species. The two trees are very similar, and you can therefore be forgiven for not necessarily knowing that there are two distinct species of oak on the British Isles. But both are extremely well-tuned to our infamous British climate, or at least will be until the Gulf Stream collapses, which hopefully hasn't happened since recording this episode, because, boy, will I look like a wally. Anyway, if anything, the pedunculate oak is the more dominant in our drier south and east, where there are greater extremes in temperature, benefiting from the water retention of the more dense clay soils there too. Whilst contrary to this, the sessile oak prevails in the milder and wetter north and west and prefers drained, sandier soils. Swap them around and chances are the pedunculate will drown and the sessile will suffer from drought, the yin and the yang of the British oak world. Occurring so commonly and as such seeming to capture the epitome of what a natural British woodland should look like, it should come as no surprise that the oak has been adopted as our nation's tree – the oak stands proud as the logos for both our national and woodland trusts. Oaks even appear on our currency. But interestingly, the individual principalities of the British Isles view each species' importance slightly differently. England's national tree is the pedunculate, or English oak, whereas Wales and Ireland specify the sessel as the Irish, or Welsh oak. Doesn't exactly scream unity. The Cornish even claim the Cecil as their Cornish oak, and perhaps, unsurprisingly and wisely, the Scottish proudly adopt their own Scots pine and keep well out of this friendly disagreement. The truth is, when taken as a symbol, the oak has been championed by many contradictory causes. The ancient Romans called the oak tree robo, meaning robust or strong. Our pedunculate scientific name retains that word, quercus robo. And this is one reason why David Cameron adopted it as the logo for the Conservative Party. But it was also the reason why, as a symbol of an athlete's strength, alongside the 130 gold medals, winners at the Munich Olympics of 1936 were awarded one of 130 oak tree saplings to take back to their home country. Some of these trees still stand today, some with plaques highlighting their historical notability. Others stand in secret ashamed of their association with the Nazi games, and some have been vandalised and branded as Hitler's oaks. In one near-miss twist of irony, one of the four British gold medal oak trees barely survived a bombing from the Luftwaffe during the Second World War. But Hitler also, sadly, expressed his admiration for the oak tree in another way, by making the highest honour one could be awarded for serving on behalf of the Reich, the Iron Cross, one adorned with golden oak leaves. But oaks played a different role in arguably England's most divisive domestic war. 
During the English Civil War, following the Battle of Worcester in 1651, fleeing from the wrath of the Roundheads, the future King Charles II hid in the trunk of a hollowed-out oak tree, a tree which became known as the Royal Oak. Sadly, the original tree no longer stands, due in no small part to the pilfering mitts of 17th and 18th century royalist tourists who repeatedly snapped off souvenirs, but fortunately, descendants of the Royal Oak do still stand. And in 1660, to say thank you to this tree, Charles II declared May the 29th as a public holiday, Arbor Day, or Royal Oak Day, as it became known. People would celebrate Royal Oak Day by wearing a sprig of oak, or risk being thrashed with nettles, pelted with eggs, or worse still, they could be bonneted, which is to have their hat violently pulled down over their eyes, basically a period wedgie. And in Sussex, Royal Oak Day is called Pinch Bum Day for a punishment that I don't think needs any further illustration here. But coming from Salisbury, as I do-ish, I always knew May the 29th by another different name. We called it Oak Apple Day. Now, each Oak Apple Day, villagers from the nearby Wiltshire town of Great Wishford would wake around 4am, gather wood from a nearby forest, turn some of them into scarecrows, decorate their houses with others, hoist a large oak bough to the top of the parish church in order to bring good luck to all those married there that year, and then process the five miles into Salisbury Cathedral close with yet more oak branches held high, where four women dressed in 19th century costumes have a little pagan dance, after which all the villagers march the length of the cathedral, recite some old words, dump some more sticks on the altar, and all of this while standing proudly beneath a socialist banner, demanding... Grovely! 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 And all grovely! Unity is strength! They then all head home and eat game pie. Now, you won't be at all surprised to hear that this has little to do with Charles II hiding in a tree. Predating the Norman conquests, Great Wishford had the rights of Estover in the nearby oak woods of Grovely. In medieval law, Estover was the right for residents to freely gather dead wood. Great Wishford residents also had the rights of pawnage over all hogs and pigs. But I'll get on to pigs in a moment. Now, a charter written in 1609 states that these privileges, having existed since... A time out of mind. ...be perpetuated so long as representatives of the village... ...go in daunts to the Cathedral Church of Our Blessed Lady in the city of New Sarum, and there made their claim to their custom in the forest of Grovely, in these words. Grovely, Grovely, and all Grovely. And as such, a precedent was set. But, in 1809, greatly exacerbating the impact of the oncoming 1820s economic depression, the Earl of Pembroke had the manor and the woods of Grovely enclosed, stomping on the villagers' rights of Estover, most likely in favour of hunting or orgies or... Private bull tournaments, who knows? Anyway, the villagers headed to the courts to protect their Estover claim, as they had on numerous occasions dating back to 1292, but to little formal success. And so, in 1892, the villagers inaugurated the Oak Apple Club. They took the words to heart from the 1609 statute and declared loudly that unity is strength and that they would not have their Estover quashed. A formal agreement was eventually reached in 1987, but still, each Oak Apple Day, all of Great Wishford, even during a Covid pandemic, march beneath a banner adorned with oak leaves and oak apples and demand their wood. 
So, there you go, May the 29th. Is it Royal Oak Day or Oak Apple Day? A celebration of monarchistic rule where anti-royalists get thrashed with nettles or a democratic socialist movement with pagan overtones built upon the right to collect firewood? It's your call. I should also probably take this moment to say what an oak apple is because, amongst being quite amazing, it's also fairly essential for my career – Oak apples are formed when oak apple gall wasps lay their eggs into the tissue of an oak tree bud. The tree then creates a protective husk, the gall, around the eggs to help protect the tree and in turn cocoon the wasp larvae, the result of which is a healthy tree, albeit covered in galls, and some new wasps. Now, according to folklore, if you were to cut open a gall and find an insect, which is probably fairly often, as that's pretty much what most galls are designed for, then they would foretell the future. A 1579 text says that if you cut a gall open to find a little worm and it flies away, that's right, a worm with wings, it signifies war is imminent. Whilst another text, this time from the 17th century, suggests a spider's presence within a gall will predetermine famine. And depending upon which of these two historic oak apple oracles you prefer, a worm just doing its usual worm motion could represent either a year of plenty or... A year of plague. But the truth underlying these tales is that the oak supports a massive variety of different species and as such a huge array of different galls too, made not simply by wasps but other gall-forming insects, mites and worms with wings, apparently. There are spangle galls, which look like little barnacles upon the oak's leaves. Nopper galls, which make the oakhorns explode to look like popcorn. Cherry galls, which look like, you've guessed it, big red cherries. Current galls, they look like translucent currants. And indeed, the aforementioned oak apple galls. And many of these galls can be very, very, very useful. The oak marble gall wasp, for example, was deliberately introduced to Britain in the 1830s because the marble gall that their larvae force an oak to make proved incredibly useful for making dyes for the clothing industry. But this is nothing compared to the uses to which we have put the oak apple. Without the oak apple, it is unlikely that we would have the works of Shakespeare or Jane Austen, or indeed the Magna Carta, da Vinci's sketchbooks or Handel's music, all of the above were scribed in an indelible ink made from oak apple galls. And it is this indelibility that the villagers of Great Wishford wished to adopt for their protest. Oak gall ink is made by crushing oak apples and mixing them with an iron sulphate solution. And it is the tannins present in the oak galls that make the ink so long-lasting. Oak trees are incredibly rich in tannins. Tannins are the chemicals used by us for turning animal hides into leather, for adding a pleasing, furry flavour to wine, and, if modern scientific research is to be believed, and I believe it should be, for safely extracting uranium from our oceans. But botanically speaking, these tannins are the chemicals that prevent potential grazers snacking too heavily as the oak is trying to grow, and also what stops an oak from decaying too quickly, and is one of the key reasons why oaks stand for so many years – Oak trees can live for centuries. In fact, I recorded my very first episode of Trees A Crowd beneath an 800-year-old oak, where the artist Mark Frith told me... They say the life of the oak tree, 300 years growing, 300 years maturing and 300 years dying. Oaks, especially if pollarded, that is having the top and the branches cut off to encourage new growth, can live for several hundreds of years. 
A small number of British oaks are even known to be over 1,000 years old and as such lend themselves all too well to accommodating owls in their branches, badgers in their root systems and, most importantly, legends. The major oak tree in Sherwood Forest is a pedunculate oak. It is thought to have sheltered Robin Hood and is somewhere around the 900-year-old mark. The 600-ish year-old Burnham oak in Perthshire is a Cecil oak. It is the last remaining tree from Burnham Woods which supposedly brought down Macbeth and which would also already have been an old tree when Shakespeare, again supposedly, visited it in 1589. But how can you tell our native pedunculate and Cecil oaks apart? Well, one way is hidden in their names. A peduncle is a stalk, so pedunculate means with a stalk. Cecil simply means attached at the base. Now this refers to how the flowers, long, yellow and hanging like catkins, and eventually the acorns and cupules form on the branch. On a cecil they are born crowded together at the tip of the twig, hidden amongst the freshly emerging leaves. Whereas on the pedunculate oak, as you've probably inferred, acorns and flowers are born on the end and along the side of a stalk, a peduncle. The leaves of the two oaks are also incredibly similar, but the pedunculate oaks have a very short petiole concealed by lobes at the base of the leaf blade, whereas the sessile oak has leaf blades that taper down neatly to the stalk and twig. To put all this more succinctly, sessile leaves have stalks, but its acorns don't, whereas it's the opposite in pedunculate. Got it? Good. That said... Nature, in all its usual increasingly predictable wisdom, doesn't want to make things that easy for you. For when territory overlaps, both oaks may cross-pollinate, producing a fertile hybrid, which often occurs more commonly than either parent in mixed woodlands. So best of luck in that instance. Like all deciduous trees, oaks prefer not to lose the energy invested in their chlorophyll-rich leaves, and as such they reclaim it, sucking the green hue from the canopy and placing that energy back into their roots when the season starts heading for winter. But our oaks can also produce a second flush of leaves during the spring and summer months if needed, and this can prove very handy. For an oak supports hundreds of species of hungry invertebrates, considerably more than any other of our native tree species. And to pick just three, stag beetles make their home in the mulchy leaf litter beneath oak trees. Acorn weevils that look like gonzo from the Muppets lay their eggs inside of the acorns, whereas purple hairstreak butterflies prefer life within the sheltered canopies of an oak, meaning they're incredibly hard to spot, but also that one single oak tree could literally house thousands of these striking, handsome, purple-winged beauties. And the oak's benefit to biodiversity does not stop with invertebrates. Writing in 1836, Eliza Bray, in the catchily titled Description of the Part of Devonshire Bordering on the Tamar on the Tavy, describes the pedunculate oaks found in Wistman's Wood, right in the middle of Dartmoor, as such. The oaks are stunted in their growth by the sweeping winds to which they stand exposed – but they spread far and wide at their tops, and their branches twist and wind in the most torturous and fantastic manner. In some places, these branches are literally festooned with ivy and creeping plants, and their trunks are so thickly embedded in a covering of fine velvet moss that at first sight, you would imagine them to be of enormous thickness. But it is only their velvet coats that make them look so bulky. The bark of an oak tree 
can be found to be coated in ferns, mosses, lichens and liverworts, a whole array of plant species that grow directly upon the surface of another plant, extracting the nutrients they need from the surrounding atmosphere and leaving their host unharmed. These plants are called epiphytes, genuinely my favourite word, and these epiphytes, great word, may well be a sign of something even more incredible than the word epiphyte itself. Epiphyte. For thousands of years, starting in England and Wales, and running all along the extreme coastal fringes of the Atlantic seaboard, right up until warmer Mediterranean climes take hold, coastal oakwoods received not only a substantial dollop of rainfall, but also a mass exposure to sea mists. They are as wet as a sponge. And as such, these forests were, slash are, classified as what is an incredibly rare, on a global scale, habitat. They are known as temperate rainforests. That is right, you heard correctly. England is, slash was, famed for its rainforests. Temperate rainforests in general, like the oak specifically, are alive with biodiversity. They are one of the most biodiverse habitats in the whole of the British Isles. For example, hundreds of species of lichen thrive here due to the high humidity and yet low range in temperature. Oaks can hold stunningly varied lichens with equally spectacular names. There's the tree flute, the bloody heart, the fishbone beard, black-eyed Susan, one deceptively named the oak moss, and the desperate Dan lichen, so-called because of its stubble-like black hairs. And if you're aware that one lichen is actually a composite organism, a symbiotic grouping of a fungus with an alga and or a bacterium, then it should be pretty clear to you that there is a heck of a lot going on in these busy habitats. And for thousands of years, these rainforests have nurtured these incredible and unique biodiversical footprints. Today, according to the academic Christopher Ellis, 20% of Britain remains in the temperate rainforest bioclimactic zone and could still therefore support temperate rainforests. But due to the repurposing of our countryside, we only have a very few small number of pockets remaining. But to save, and hopefully extend these habitats, we must first find all of the remnants of rainforest that England and Wales still possess. So if you think you know of a lost patch of temperate rainforest, head to lostrainforestsofbritain.org, where Guy Shrubsole is mapping Britain's rainforests, those on steep, inaccessible hillsides, or amongst waterfalls and rushing streams, or even those in inaccessible parts of Dartmoor, like Wistman's Oak Wood. Wistman's Wood is just one such pocket of temperate rainforest, but not one solely famous for its ancient oak trees and epiphytes. It is said to provide a home to the devilish wished hounds, hellhounds that prowled the moors at night in search of lost souls, hellhounds that inspired Arthur Conan Doyle's Hound of the Baskervilles, hellhounds from which one's only hope of evading is, if folklore is to be believed, to turn one item of your clothing inside out, apparently. But Wistman's is also home to something even more mysterious. Here's an extract from the 1895 book An Exploration of Dartmoor by John Lloyd Warden Page. From whichever side approached, the explorer will see a spectacle not easily forgotten. As he stands there in the grey light with no trace of life visible, he may be pardoned if a feeling of something very like awe take possession of the soul, for he will almost expect to see the wraith of some druid priest gliding along the steep hillside. Wistman's Wood was a ceremonial centre for druids. 
Druids are the mystical philosopher-priests from ancient Celtic cultures and were drawn to our oaks. They were in awe of their long life, their grand stature, and of the abundance of life they supported. The word druid is even derived from the words dur, meaning oak tree, and weed, meaning to see or to know. To be found worshipping and practising their rites in oak groves, a druid, by definition, was literally a knower of the oak, or an oak seer. But what they did there, we don't exactly know, for they left no written accounts, and as such, almost everything about them is steeped in a sexy mystery. Here's D.H. Lawrence in one of his cheerier moods. For I tell you, beneath this powerful tree, my whole soul's fluid oozes away from me as a sacrifice steam at the knife of a druid. Again, I tell you, I bleed. I am bound with withies. My life runs out. I tell you, my blood runs out on the floor of this oak, gout upon gout. Not far from my home stands a pair of ancient oak trees named Gog and Magog. Collectively, they are known as the Oaks of Avalon. Avalon, literally the Isle of the Fruit Trees, and I'm more than happy to declare that acorns are fruits, is where the legendary sword of King Arthur, Excalibur, was forged. These two trees, in line with Glastonbury Tor, are said to be the entry point onto the island of Avalon. They were the start of a ceremonial druidic avenue of oak trees leading all the way up to the Tor, which then gave way to another ceremonial avenue of yew trees. Most of these oaks were still standing until being felled to make space for a farm in 1906. According to the book Maker of Myths, Someone from the timber firm remembers one of the oaks being 11 feet in diameter, and more than 2,000 season rings were counted. Now whether accurate or not, that would suggest an oak tree that was alive at the birth of Christ. An oak tree that in one horrific gesture was felled in a matter of minutes. But somewhat against the odds, for centuries the stoic, tacit might of the oak has fortunately, occasionally, quelled mankind's love of the axe, at least temporarily. For example, in 49 BC, Julius Caesar faced a near mutiny at the hands of his own men who refused to chop down a sacred grove of oaks. Caesar saw merely a resource, an obstruction to his goal of sacking Marseille, but his men saw an act of unforgivable violation. Writing a few decades later, the Roman poet Lucan describes what happened next. When Caesar saw his cohorts, confused and paralysed, he dared to be the first to heave and raise a double-bladed axe and pierce a lofty oak with steel, driving deep the blade into the trunk now violated. He proclaims, Now none of you should balk at clearing this grove. Just credit me with the guilt. And just five years later, Caesar too was to find himself getting chopped down. But closer to home, of the two Albion oaks that escaped the chop for centuries, Magog is still alive. But Gog was accidentally set alight by a candle in 2017, which is somewhat ironic. For oaks, as discussed last week, can often find their demise as a result of a heaven-sent lightning strike, linking them to the Vikings' thunder god Thor, the Saxons' equivalent Donna, or the ancient Greeks' Zeus. So for such a revered oak to survive both celestial fire and terrestrial chopper, to fall foul of a forgetful hippie's candle is a little underwhelming, to say the least. To ward off lightning strikes, 
People traditionally hanged carved acorn-shaped oak bobbins on blind pulls. In the house I grew up in, we had a wooden acorn hanging from the light switch in the downstairs loo, and I can honestly attest that our downstairs lab was never struck by lightning. But then I did grow up in the New Forest, an oak forest planted in 1066, so I guess the lightning had better destinations in mind. Anyway, at this time, when I was more acorn than oaks, acorns formed the centre of a particularly exciting part of the build-up to Christmas. The fruits of the Fagaceae, as you learnt last week, are called mast. And in the lead-up to Christmas, for 60 days, commoners of the forest, that is, those who live within the New Forest's boundaries, are permitted to release their pigs, and most importantly to child me, piglets, into the forest to roam free and to glut on the abundance of fallen acorns. This practice is called the common of mast. Acorns and beech nuts and sweet chestnuts are exceptionally rich in protein, which is great for birds, many mammals, and especially the aforementioned acorn-guzzling piglets. As a child, I loved watching long lines of little pink bottoms snaking through the forest, snuffling out acorns to scoff. But besides pleasing my peculiarities, this period of panage served a dual purpose. As well as helping the pigs to put on weight for their eventual festive slaughter, the common of mast enabled pigs and piglets to hoover up the acorns which were poisonous to ponies, cattle and sheep, which also roam wild in the new forest. It's a wonderful example of nature and traditional farming practice working in synchronicity. And if the drive to rewild one-third of our countryside continues, we are likely to see pigs living in oak woodlands as a feature of forest management much more often. And in the wild, a different synchronicity is at play. Here, species that produce highly nutritious nuts don't produce them every year. In a strategy that has evolved over some considerable time, all the oak or beech trees in a wood will work in synchrony to provide a collective glut or a collective famine. If there are no nuts for a few years, the nut eaters, larger herbivores, squirrels, etc., not just piglets, move on or die. Then if all the trees mast together, a good mast year, there are not so many nut-eaters around to devour them, and the oak or beech all stand a better chance of getting some to germinate. Arboreal collectivism at work. Unity is strength. Right, to end this week's episode, from one mast to another. Oakwood is extremely waterproof and resistant to warping, making it perfect for seafaring vessels. Viking longboats were made of oak, so too was it the mainstay of the wooden walls of Old England, the British Navy. Henry VIII formed what was then called the Navy Royal in 1509, but by the time his daughter Elizabeth was on the throne, her navy comprised 40 vessels, all made from oak. And by the time Nelson led our army in 1805, there were around 1,000 wooden ships, all having been made through the harvesting of Great Britain's ancient oak forests. One record I read said that a three-decker line-of-battle warship, that's one capable of being on the front line of a naval onslaught with three fully armed levels of cannon, took roughly three and a half thousand fully grown oak trees to make, the equivalent to 900 acres of oak woodland. And Nelson's flagship, the HMS Victory, which took to the water in 1765 and still floats today, supposedly took 6,000 trees, of which 90% were oaks. In fact, one of the reasons why Nelson went to war against the Danes in 1801 was that up until about 1804, when Indian teak proved a suitable alternative, 
Building warships was simply impossible without large oak trees, and we had already cut down too many of our native oak forests. As such, one key objective to the 1801 English wars was to secure trade routes through the Baltic to maintain access to a steady supply of timber from further afield. You just can't grow an oak tree quick enough for an insatiable naval force, and for reasons that shouldn't need explaining, both in a maritime sense as well as a biodiversal one. Two two-hundred-year-old oak trees simply aren't equal to one four-hundred-year-old oak. For these same reasons, the current rebuilding of the spire at Notre Dame in Paris is using centuries-old oak trees that have stood for far longer than even the original spire had. Much of the oak going into that rebuilding project witnessed the French Revolution. But I will leave you to decide which is the more valuable: a centuries-old woodland habitat. Or a recreation of a far younger Christian monolith. Personally, I was in favour of the theoretical architectural design that not only rebuilt the cathedral's roof, but installed a public swimming pool up there amongst the gargoyles too. So that's it: pagans and piglets, Gauls and gold medals, rainforests and royalists, Nazis and navies, Cecil and pedunculate. Thank you to Bella Hardy, George McGavin, Adam Ewan, Claire Corbett, Alexander Peckin, Guy Shrubsole, Louis Maskell, and as usual, my long-suffering editor, especially this week, Ollie. And a massive thank you to all of you who have made it to the end of this particular mammoth episode of Trees of Crowd. It has been a good mast week. So, as a reward to draw this episode to a close. Written originally for an opera in 1759 by the actor David Garrick, and since adopted as the official march for our historically oaken Royal Navy, here adapted especially for Teresa Crowd, with more resonance than Henry VIII and his entire wooden fleet, are a broadside of the butchest balladeers. This is Louis, Alex, a couple of Ashleys who, alongside Joe and Harry, make up the show shanties. And this is Heart of Oak. Bye bye, and thank you for listening. Come cheer up, my lads! Tis to glory we steer. To add something new to this wonderful year. To honour we call you, not press you like slaves. For you are so free as the sons of the waves. Heart of oak are our ships, jolly towers are our men. We always are ready, steady boys, steady. We'll fight and we'll conquer again and again. We never see our foes, but we wish them to stay. They never see. Us, but they wish us away. If they run, why we follow and run them ashore. And if they won't fight, as we cannot do more. Heart of oak are our ships, jolly towers are our men. We always are ready, steady boy, steady. We'll fight and we'll conquer again and again. We'll fight and we'll conquer again. Hey!